0: This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church, located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. If you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew 6. Matthew 6. People get nervous when ministers start talking about money. Um, and some of the reasons are legitimate. There, there've been abuses over the years and that's, uh, it's understandable why people feel a sense of reticence about it. But last week uh, I mentioned two reasons it's unwise for pastors to avoid talking about money. The first is that so many of our problems and our worries and our difficulties and complexities of life revolve around money. So to ignore money from the pulpit does a disservice to people uh, in our churches. The second reason it's unwise to avoid talking about money is that so much of the Bible's about money. There are more than 2,000 verses in the Bible that discuss it. You'd be hard pressed to find another topic that's given that much much attention. Jesus spoke about money more than he did about sex, more than he did about heaven, more than he did about hell. I've joked with uh, pastoral colleagues that if any of us taught on money, proportionately to what Jesus does with money, none of us would have a church. None of us would have a church. So with the Bible talking about money with the kind of frequency it does, with Jesus talking about money with the kind of frequency that he does, there must be something about money uh, that, that is the reason for this much attention given to it. In Matthew 19, Jesus says, again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Now someone may object to Jesus' words, they may counter his words by citing First Timothy 6.10, the love of money is the root of all evil, but Jesus is pretty precise here. He says it's harder for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. He doesn't say it's harder for a rich person who loves their money to enter the kingdom. It's just hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. That's a tough pill to swallow. No less easy are Jesus' words to us in Matthew 6. Craig Keener states it matter-of-factly. He says, so uncomfortable are his words that among his professed followers today, it appears far more common to explain away his radical teachings here than to consider how to apply them. So we're gonna dive in. Matthew 6, I'm gonna read verses 19-19. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. These verses are part of the greatest sermon ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount, And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is unfolding for us what a life that lives out the message of the gospel will look like. If we actually take the gospel and we live it out, what will that look like? In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus unpacks that for us. And one of the areas of the Christian life that he covers has to do with money and possessions. So here's what we'll consider today. We're going to look at the fragility of earthly wealth the power of earthly wealth and the route to heavenly wealth. The fragility of earthly wealth, the power of earthly wealth and the route to heavenly wealth. First, the fragility of earthly wealth. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. In the ancient world, one's wealth was not in bank accounts or retirement portfolios. It was in currency and possessions it was coins it was clothing it was stuff so when Jesus says that our treasures are threatened by moths vermin and thieves he's saying that your coins your clothing your stuff are susceptible this isn't hyperbole in the ancient world these were very real threats to one's wealth now in 2018 we look at that and we say you know I don't remember the last time moths were a problem for me So far in my life, mice have posed very little threat to my savings account. And I've never in my lifetime been robbed or burglarized. So we look at Jesus' teaching, and part of us says, "Mm, it's kind of hard to relate to. My treasures are not as defenseless as they were in Jesus' time. And that may be true. If we read the text that way, Jesus' words do kind of lose a bit of power in 2018. My guess is, though, that if you're a Jesus follower, you would agree that Jesus' teachings are timeless. And so Jesus isn't saying moths, vermin, and rust are a threat to your money and possessions in the year 2018. So what is he saying? Well, Jesus is using first century imagery to make a timeless statement. What he's saying is very simple. Your wealth is vulnerable. He's saying, don't underestimate how susceptible it is. In a sense, Jesus is is pulling the curtain back. He's inviting us in to see the world from his perspective. And he's saying, if you could see your wealth and how you've acquired it from my perspective, you'd realize just how much your wealth hangs by a thread. He's trying to get across to us the timeless fragility of earthly wealth. Most of us remember very well the economic crisis that occurred in this country and around the world in 2008 and 2009. Uh, after that global meltdown, there followed a string of suicides um, of v- formerly wealthy and very well-connected individuals. The acting chief financial officer, of Freddie Mac. Hanged himself in his basement. The chief executive of Sheldon Good, a leading U.S. real estate auction firm, shot himself in the head behind the wheel of his Jaguar. A French money manager who invested the wealth of many of Europe's royal and leading families and who had lost $1.4 billion of his client's wealth, slid his wrists and died in his Madison Avenue office people who understand the fragility of earthly wealth, people who truly understand the fragility of earthly wealth do not react this way when it's lost. The only explanation must be that they thought their wealth was sturdier than Jesus himself says it is. Now, why that's important, why it's important for us to understand the fragility of earthly wealth will become clearer as we look at the entire picture Jesus paints for us. So let's look second at the power of earthly wealth. Paradoxically, earthly wealth is simultaneously fragile and remarkably powerful. Paradoxically, earthly wealth is simultaneously fragile and remarkably powerful. In verses 22 and 23, we have a somewhat enigmatic statement. Jesus says, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. The short of it is this. Greed, materialism have a blinding effect. That's the short of it. They have a blinding effect. Having an inordinate desire or dependence on money and material things has a peculiar effect of blinding us spiritually. It possesses the ability to distort the way we see things. It has a power over how we see everything. In a related teaching in Luke 12, Jesus says, Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Now, Jesus, in his teaching, as you know, addressed all kinds of sins. But only with the sin of greed does he use the command, Watch out. He doesn't say, Watch out to other sins. Why? Because greed and materialism, they're an eye sin, a sin of the eye. It has a blinding effect. Let me give you an example of this. Um, pastors are sounding boards for people's confession of sin. That's just the way it works. That goes with the turf. Uh, I've, I've spent 13 years in full-time ministry and seven years of part-time ministry before that. And during the course of, of, of those years, I've had people come and confess things like lust and adultery, debauchery and anger and anxiety, shady business dealings, bitterness, uh, unforgiveness, kind of the whole, whole gamut. But in all that time, I have never had anybody come to me and confess the sin of greed. Ever. Never, ever. Now, it's not because everybody's innocent of it. It's an eye sin. It's a sin of the eye. It has a blinding effect. In other words, nobody ever thinks they're guilty of it. So if you look at greed and think to yourself, this isn't a problem for me, you wouldn't know if it is. You wouldn't know if it is. Let me flesh out a couple of uh, life scenarios where it exerts a power over us. Materialism, greed, one example, materialism, greed, Uh, has the power to get you to choose a job you don't love or aren't particularly gifted for because it'll make you money. You take the job, you do the job, not because you love it, not because you're good at it, but because it affords you other perks. The house you want to live in, the cars you want to drive, the trips you want to take, the social status it creates. That's the power of earthly wealth. Let me give you another example. Earthly wealth, greed, materialism prevent you from asking hard questions about your lifestyle. The reality is, when when we're greedy, we don't ever feel rich. We don't ever feel rich. And therefore, we don't ask hard questions. Questions like, do I really need to spend this much on... Do I really need to be putting this much money into my house do I really need to be driving this car? Do I need to be spending this much money on clothes? And the reason we don't ask these questions is because we can immediately think of people who spend more, and therefore the problem goes away. We don't have to ask these of ourselves. We can think of people who spend more, so therefore we're off the hook. Greed materialism has a blinding effect. It causes us not to stop and think to ourselves, now, wait a minute. Now, wait a minute. Is there a way I can be giving away more of my money to the church, to missions, to the poor, to my friends, to the neighbors? Is there a way I can be more radically generous if I made this or that change? Materialism, greed, earthly wealth prevent us from asking those questions. That's its power. In 1635, 1635, there's a guy by the name of Robert Cain. Uh, he was a member of, of the First Congregational Church of Boston. Okay, 1600s, keep in mind. And he was doing pretty well as a businessman. But in 1635, his elders disciplined him for the sin of greed. Now, I don't think they excommunicated him, but they suspended him from the Lord's Supper, And they publicly admonished him. Okay, so the elders disciplined him for the sin of greed. Well, how did they do that? Well, it was because he was selling his product at a 6% profit. Okay, and the church had decided three or four years before that, the church had decided that Christians were able to sell their products at only a 4% profit. So when they found out he was selling his stuff at a 6% prophet, they disciplined him for the sin of greed. Some of you are thinking, where is this illustration going? Now, when I heard this story, I thought, well, that is absolutely ridiculous. That's stupid. But I began to mull it a little bit more, and I thought, you know what? Actually, it, that's not as stupid as it first sounds. Because they realized something. They re- this church realized something. See, when you're committing adultery, you know you're committing adultery. You don't mistake that. You know you're committing adultery. But when you're committing the sin of greed, do you know? No, you never know. You never know. So they sat down and they thought it out. And they're thinking to themselves, well, Jesus talks about money all the time. He says, watch out for greed. He says, uh, give away your money. Don't spend it on yourself. So, so the leaders of this church thought to themselves, look, some business practices must be greedy. They must be. Some lifestyles must be greedy. But how are we going to know? So they sat down and they made some concrete decisions. Now, here's the deal. It was mutual and it was consensual and everybody in the church knew it. Now, I'm not saying that we could all get together and mutually and consensually agree on an acceptable percentage profit. I'm not saying that. Our economic systems are are probably more complicated than they were in the 1600s. But here's what I'm wondering. I'm wondering, I'm wondering if you ever stop and think and ask questions like, how are we spending our money? How much are we giving away? How much are we keeping? Further, this is tough. Have you authorized another Christian in your life to ask you those questions? Have you authorized another Christian in your life to ask you those questions? See, this sin of the eye means we can't trust ourselves with it. We cannot trust ourselves to accurately determine if we're guilty of the sin of greed. This is the power of earthly wealth. Third, the route to heavenly wealth. Jesus says, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. For those of you who've attended um, Bible teaching churches for some length of time, these words are probably familiar to you. Um, I want to point out that there's a double entendre here to Jesus' words. On the one hand, Uh, jesus is saying where we put our treasure indicates where our loyalties and desires lie jesus is saying that our treasures show what we really love if you want to if you want to know what you really love look at where you put your money or, or maybe even more precisely what can you spend your money on without giving it a second thought what can you spend your money on without giving it a second thought where do your treasures most easily flow Whatever those things are, are indicators of what you truly love. So on the one hand, this is what Jesus is getting at, but that's not all he's saying. He's also saying that our hearts follow our treasure. In other words, if you want to see heart change take place in your life, start redirecting your money down other avenues. That is, what you do with your money has a transforming effect on your heart. What you do with your money has a transforming effect on your spiritual well being. It's not just that heart change leads to behavior change with our money, it's behavior change with our money leads to heart change. What you do is influential. So in counseling situations, I'll tell people all the time, if they're stuck in a cycle of anger or worry or melancholy or they just feel stuck spiritually, they don't just need to read the Bible more or pray more. They need to give more. Give more money, give more time, give more service. Why? Because so much of our anger, our worry, our melancholy, our stuckness results from self-preoccupation, self-concentration. If you're stuck, you don't need to to consume more. You need to give more. Your heart has a tendency to follow where you're putting your treasure. So where are you putting your treasure? On yourself, others? If you want to see heart change in your life, start redirecting your treasure down other avenues. Now, is that just an act of willpower? Last week... Uh, we noticed Paul exhorting Christians to give in accordance with the gospel. We looked at that last time. If you want to start redirecting your treasure down different avenues, you're going to have to work the gospel into your heart. Let's, let's, let me do that with you. I'll give you an example of how to do that. Think about this. What did Jesus do with his treasure? Think about the treasure he had. He had the ultimate treasure. He was the Lord. He had the ultimate status. He had the ultimate security. He was the son of the father. He had exorbitant treasure. But when he came to earth, what happened to him on the cross? He was utterly stripped. He was stripped of all his clothing, all his belongings, and that was just an echo that he was spiritually stripped. He lost all his treasure. Why? You remember when we were in Exodus 19? God told his people he rescued them from slavery in Egypt in order to make them his treasured possession. Jesus, on the cross, accomplished an even greater rescue. On the cross, Jesus lost the treasure he had to make you his treasured possession. In Isaiah 53, by prophecy, we read that when Jesus saw the results of his suffering, he was satisfied. Jesus used his treasure to make you his treasured possession, and when he had accomplished that, he was satisfied. This is rubbing the gospel into your economic life. And the primary litmus test that you've worked the gospel into your your economic life is that you get really generous you get really generous. When Jesus talks about the good eye in Matthew 6, this word for good also means single. It also means single. So when the grace of God takes root in you, you've got a single eye towards something, a single-track mind, a one-track mind forgiving, always looking for ways to be generous. Jesus was so generous, he had to change his lifestyle. Think about this. Think about what his life was like before before Christmas, before the incarnation, before his life, his ministry, his death. Think about what life was like for him. He had to change his lifestyle. He sacrificed his lifestyle. To love like Jesus means we've got to give enough money away that our lifestyle has to change in some way. Is there a cross in your economic life? I don't think anybody has put this better than C.S. Lewis. Mere Christianity, he says, I do not believe one can settle how much we ought to give. I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. In other words, if our expenditure on comforts, luxuries, amusements, etc. is up to the standard common among those with the same income as our own, we are probably giving away too little. If our charities do not at all pinch or hamper us, I should say they are too small. There ought to be things we should like to do and cannot do because our charitable expenditure excludes them. How much is that? (laughs) I don't believe Christians are required to tithe to give 10%. But for most of us, being generous will mean giving away more than 10%. For most of us, giving away 10% won't pinch us. It won't hamper us. For most of us, giving away 10% won't prevent us from doing the things that we want to do. For most of us, giving away 10% won't require a lifestyle change. Which means it's very likely giving 10% is a bare minimum. Let me type one loose in. First point Jesus is making is that our earthly wealth is fragile. That if we could see our earthly wealth and how we've acquired it from His perspective, we'd see it hangs by a thread. The natural question that comes out of that is how do I make it secure? Jesus' answer to that is by giving it away. By giving it away. It's paradoxical. When you get really generous, when you get radically generous, we make heavenly investments that are immune to threats. When you get radically generous, when you get really generous and you start giving away your money, we're making heavenly investments that are immune to what, what the economies are doing. The moment the money is given, the heavenly investment has been made and it cannot be altered. That's how you make it secure. <laughs> the route to heavenly wealth begins by working the gospel into your heart, Jesus sacrificed his treasure to make you his treasured possession. He sacrificed his lifestyle to bless you. He's the ultimate example of storing up treasure in heaven. And as you work this into your life, you'll begin to redirect your treasure down other avenues. You'll start giving more of your money to your church, to missions, to the poor, to your friends, to your neighbors. And you'll really start to experience heart change. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Let's pray. Gracious God, you spared little expense to purchase and redeem your people. The fact of the matter is our salvation was expensive. So I pray that you'd help us to be mindful the treasure Jesus sacrificed in order to make us your treasured possession as we meditate on his generosity his humility I pray that you would form us into a community of people who are known for their radical generosity pray that you give us a one track mind always looking for opportunities to give away our wealth You have blessed us, God, so that we can be conduits of blessing to others. May this be true of us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.